what Keep Kids Alive is all about. It's all about preserving relationships. I used to ride my bike when I was little, but never in a competitive way. And I found out that it turned out that I was actually good at racing bikes. And I went on to compete at a state level in Texas. I have two state championship jerseys. I look, there's no one. I signal, I look. And the next thing I know, I am making my turn and the grill of an F-150 truck is in my face. Nobody needs to die out there. We're in the middle of a crisis and we have to treat it as what it is. I think a lot of people have gotten to a point where they just assume that because we have cars, there's going to be a natural consequence and somebody has to die because that's just the price we have to pay. And it's not true. Absolutely zero. I want to welcome uh, everyone to the Keep Kids Alive podcast. I'm Tom Everson. I'm the uh, founder and executive director for Keep Kids Alive Drive 25. We're a nonprofit whose mission is to help make streets safer for all who walk, cycle, play, drive, and ride. So we're concerned about traffic safety on and along roadways of all kinds. So all of us are included in our mission. Today, we have a very special guest, Trini Willerton, who is in Boulder, Colorado and is an avid cyclist and has been a uh, triathlete as well. We're going to hear her story today, but I want to welcome you, Trini. I want to thank Laura Fredericks. She was on our August podcast and she connected Trini and I together so that we could have this conversation today. Welcome, Trini. Happy that you could join us. Thank you so much for having me, Tom. I mean, it means a lot, and I, I'm just very grateful to have the opportunity to share not only my story, but what we're trying to do with It Could Be Me. Well, thank you. Well, let's start off with your story. Uh, you know, we had a conversation on the phone a couple of months ago, but what led up to our ability to have that conversation was your story. And so I'd like to invite you to, to share your story of what precipitated launching It Could Be Me in the first place. Well, Tom, honestly, you know, I had been an athlete for over 10 years. I mean, I was a late bloomer (laughs) as an athlete. I really, growing up, I tried team sports, but I was not really very good at it. I always ended up on the bench and I could run, but nobody, I I, I don't think I ever was trained properly. So if I would have been able to take advantage of that younger, perhaps my life would have been different. But as it was, I was a very happy mom. I had my first baby and my body just like, it grew and it grew and it grew. <laughs> and then I had my my baby and I was able to lose some of the weight. I met some phenomenal women along the way who were in the program that I joined. And it was a very healthy program. It was focusing on not only losing weight, but making it like a lifestyle, turning your life around to where you knew how to read labels. You really knew what you were consuming in order for your body to be the best it could be. It wasn't not, it wasn't really about being thin. It was more about being fit and strong. And as that progressed, I ended up meeting a coach because it got to a point where I lost all the weight. I was super fit, super strong. And I just kept going to the gym and I just, and I was like, there must be something more. <laughs> so a friend introduced me to racing. And so I did a turkey trot 
And I just fell in love with the atmosphere, with the people, with everything about it. I just thought it was such a positive thing. And that turned into, well, what can I do next? Oh, I'm going to do a half marathon. So I did a couple of half marathons and I had a great time. And then a friend told me, well, you need to get a coach, a proper coach. And so I did. This coach that I got was an ex-Dera athlete. So he was very hardcore. He made me into an athlete that had a mentality of, oh, it's raining and it's cold. Well, that's great because, <laughs> you know, I'll be able to compete with the tough ones. You know, it'll weed out the babies, as he would say. He signed me up for my first triathlon and he signed me up for back in the day, Ironman would have like these weekend events, right? So you would have, it was a sprint, it was an Olympic event, then the half, and then they had a full day dedicated just for the full or for the half, whichever one they were um, showcasing. So he signed me up for what used to be like the Texas 70.3 and Galveston sprint. <laughs> so it was a really interesting introduction because there were like about 2000 people and I had never done a triathlon in my life. Anyway, so the swim ended up getting canceled and you know, I, I, I just, I loved, loved racing. I signed up the next weekend to another event, which was like dramatically different. It was a really tiny all women event. It was a Mother's Day event. I had never really been like good friends with women for some reason. Like most of my friends growing up were guys. And here I found this community of women that were just so supportive, that wanted the best, not only for themselves, but for others including me. <laughs> so it was like, it was really fun. And as I raced and kept racing and kept getting stronger, and I found out that I was like cycling, I had never really, I mean, I, I used to ride my bike when I was little, but never in a competitive way. And I found out that it turned out that I was actually good at, at racing bikes. And um, I went on to compete at a state level for in Texas, I have two state championship jerseys. And it was completely a surprise for me and everybody that knew me. I mean, nobody <laughs> knew that side of me. I was a musician. I was, if I was up at that time, it was because we were coming back from playing, you know, not because I was about to go and jump in the lake or anything like that. So <laughs> my life was very, very different. I think it gives it kind of a whole new meaning to, you know, when somebody tells you to go jump in a lake and it's like, well, yeah, I, I, I that would be great. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I will right now. Bye. Yeah. Have fun. Yeah. yeah. Well, and then, so then I got a different coach and this coach, I remember I, I looked for her because I wanted someone that could get me stronger in cycling. So it started like switching more into that where I was really, really interested in the cycling community. And anyway, so she said, well, are you still going to do triathlon? And I said, yeah. It's like, well, no, I have to train you as a whole because otherwise all, all the different sports that you're doing are going to impact each other. So he, I, I'll train you as a triathlete. And she did. And fast forward, that must have been around 12, 2012. So then we moved to Boulder in 2015. And I started training here. And the combination, of, I guess, of all the years and trying to put together nutrition and all the things that, you know, have to kind of click in order for you to be really successful in, especially in long distance racing, started coming together. And in 2016, I remember saying, well, you know what? I could qualify for Kona. And I was really scared of saying it, but, but I figured if I said it, maybe it would happen. 
And so in 2017, I ended up having the best racing year of my life. I was All-American. I put that um, 70.3 events and and I felt ready. So I signed up for Ironman Cosimo and I came in fourth, which is in Mexico, the only podium three. And I missed the Kona slot like by one. It was very exciting because I had never done this well. I did a 1046 and I was very proud of that time. But at the same time, I felt like, well, you know, I, my, my family was there and it was just like, <laughs> so I came back and I said, OK, well, I am going to do everything I can to qualify in Boulder. I live in Boulder. I have that advantage. I can trade it and train at altitude. I can be on the course every second that I can. And so that's my mission. And so that, that's what happened. I mean, I was on that path when it was May 8th and the weather was beautiful, beautiful. And normally I would have been riding with my husband, but that day he had just done a long ride before and he just asked me, he said, okay, well, I had to ride a century. So I had to ride a hundred miles a day. And I was doing that because the following Sunday, which would have been when I would have been riding long, was Mother's Day. And so I wanted to be with my kids. And so I said, no, 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 I'll just do it today. So I left on my own. I, you know, he told me, I'll meet you halfway through the ride. So I'll meet you around 11. And we, are, we had already said we we're going to meet and everything. And I said, okay, fine. So I went on. And I remember even like from my journey, from my house to where the crash happened, I remember having felt so lucky that I had made it to that point because there were so many like obstacles. There was a lot of construction. There were a lot of just things that normally weren't on the road. So I just, I just remember thinking, oh, I'm really lucky. And I'm as soon as I cross Nelson, I'm going to text Nigel, my husband. And so I got, I was going down Nelson and I, I looked back, I crossed 63rd. I looked back again, I signaled, I started merging because there's not a designated left-hand lane in that particular road. So I literally would have to be in the middle of the road to turn. I look, there's no one. I signal, I look. Anyway, the next thing I know, I am making my turn and the grill of an F-150 truck is in my face. And I was in, it was a combination of shock, fear. I just, I didn't know what was happening because I checked so many times and the way that road is it's very undulated so there are blind spots I suppose I mean I could not see the guy ever I I never saw him and he hits me and I fly and as I'm flying my monologue Tom is oh my god I'm so stupid what am I doing on the road what am I doing here I should be on my trainer my kids need me this is not worth it what am I doing here so I land I don't know if I'm still alive, I don't know if I, I don't really understand what's happening. A man runs to me and he says to me, don't worry, I'm a nurse. Everything's going to be okay. Just keep talking to me, focus on me. The guy that hit me comes over to us. He has my wheel in his hand. He looks down at me and all he says to me, he doesn't say, are you okay? Um, no, you didn't signal. That's what he says to me. And so the nurse just looks at him and he looks at me and he says, do not even talk to him. Just focus on me. Focus on me. We already called for help. They're coming. So just focus on me. Do you want me to call someone? Yeah. Can you please call my husband? And so he calls Nigel. At that point, we were getting all of these like not crank calls, but all these solicitors and annoying calls. And so 
Nigel doesn't answer. So he tells him, well, no one's answering. So he has to call Nigel three times in order for my husband to pick up. Eventually he does. Then another lady, when he answers, he stands up and, and then another lady comes over and she says, don't worry, um, everything's going to be okay. I'm a nurse. And I'm like, oh my God, I mean, what are the chances? You know, there's two nurses here. Later, I found out that that particular lady was there because there was a man that was killed exactly that same May 8th, but in 2017 in that intersection. And so she was there to put flowers on his ghost bike and witnessed everything. Like she saw my crash. And I think she was more, obviously she was devastated and she was worse off than I was because I was still kind of in shock and trying to figure out what was happening. So they took me to the hospital. I never got to talk to the police at the scene. So when I got to the hospital, it was just focusing on on getting better. I mean, I don't, to this day, don't understand how that that impact did not kill me, and that this man did not kill me, because the speed limit was 50 miles an hour. Some of the witnesses that were also drivers said that this man passed them as they were going the speed limit. So he was speeding. You know, so... I get to the hospital. I have over a dozen fractures. I have a punctured lung. I have other injuries and still haven't talked to the police. And I start, I get to my room. I'm in a place where I can't even move within my bed. I can't get out of the bed. Then my kids come and I see them and I'm just, every thought after the crash really has been of utter gratefulness because I just remember thinking how much my kids needed me and just the idea of me not being able to be here for them was just devastating. So, so I'm sitting there and eventually, I don't remember who it was, but someone showed me that on social media, somebody had posted this link to a local publication that for whatever reason, I guess they'd called the police station and, you know, in the police station, some, you know, most of the time, the people that are actually at the scene are not the ones that are going to pick up the phone. They're just reading off a piece of paper. For whatever reason, this person decided to print something without talking to me or talking to someone else. So he goes ahead and and prints what this person that hit me says. And he said that I swung in front of him and that it had been my fault. And when I actually got to talk to the police, they said, and I told them what had happened. They were like, well, that makes sense because we have witnesses, we have pictures We have evidence that the point of impact was on the westbound lane. We were heading eastbound. So according to him, I just swung in front of him on the eastbound lane as we were. I don't know. I I don't know what his um, version of the story was, other than he said that I swung in front of him and that we were on that eastbound lane. And, you know, the crash happened on the westbound lane. The man crossed the double yellow. I don't know if he was just trying to scare me. I don't know if he didn't see me. I don't know, but he hit me on the other side of the road. And so therefore the article just read that, you know, it had been my fault. And so all of the community that I've been cycling with for over a decade starts sticking up for me. And I said, no, absolutely not. There's no way. I mean, we have not even talked to her, but I've been writing with her for 10 years. She would never, ever do that. Right. So I keep thinking, then (laughs) I keep thinking of, people that don't have the luxury of surviving and having this put on them. And I have this feeling that, you know, Charles, which is the man that was killed there, this was what happened to him, you know, because he was also a very experienced cyclist and 
you know, he just didn't survive. And so it was only one person who got to tell the story. But luckily I did. And it took 13 months for the case to resolve. And he didn't want to admit guilt. And that was very important to me. At that point in Colorado, the law only asked for four points. I mean, that that was the consequence. As a careless driving driver causing bodily injury, it was four points on your driving record, uh, some minimal fee, and there wasn't forced restitu restitution. I mean, it was just, it was basically like if you had forgotten your insurance card, then it's someone's life, someone that you impacted forever. And anyway, um, because... I was so excited about qualifying for Kona. A couple of days before the crash on May 1st, one of my friends called me and she, she said to me, hey, Trini, um, I saw something on Facebook that I think you'd be perfect for. I'm like, what? There's this um, this spot for an inspirational woman, woman for women for try. And I think you would be perfect. At this point, this is pre-crash. And so I say to her, you know, Dana, that is for someone that has survived something horrible. I don't know. I just don't think that I am that person. And she said, no, of course you are, because you work so hard to get more women involved into sport. And, you know, I, I, I'm a writer. I'll help you. Let's get together. Let's go have coffee. We'll go over the questions and we'll put the application together. May 9th, my crash was May 8th. May 9th, she called the hospital just to check on how I was doing. And I remembered about the application and I remember how hard she'd been working. She had been sending me drafts and, you know, she did a lot of work. And, and the first thing that came to my mind was to say to my husband, please tell Dana to submit the application. This is when I'm in the bed without being able to move. And he just looks at me like I'm insane. I'm like, no, just please just do that. And so Dana ends up submitting the application. She adds a little paragraph saying, you know, my friend just got hit but she's one of the strongest people I know. And if anybody can do this, it's her. So then Iron Man starts calling my husband. I mean, I'm not really aware of these conversations because at this point, all I want to do is heal. And I have like this incredible team of doctors. I have like over 12 doctors working with me. I get to go home. I, you know, every single doctor agrees that the reason I, I was healing so well and so strongly, and I mean, I don't want to say fast because it wasn't fast, but the way it was progressing in a, such a positive way was because I was so strong. I mean, I was so fit and my body was just, you know, to me, when I was going through the whole thing, I always said, well, I was training for an Ironman and this is the Ironman. Right. This is this is what I was training for. So my body would be strong enough to be able to sustain all this. And well, anyway, so then a couple of months go by and I need to get like the green light because obviously I think they wanted to have the natural process for my body to heal. I was very fortunate in the sense that none of my fractures were displaced. So it was kind of like a double edged sword because I was I didn't have any casts. I my face didn't look like I didn't get anything on my face. My my teeth were chipped, but I think that's what took the impact because nothing, I didn't have any road rush on my face. Basically, it was just kind of being patient and very careful because I tend to do too much. And so just kind of like keeping myself down and, and letting my body heal. Once that's done, I get this phone call. It was a phone call from New Jersey from a number that I didn't recognize. And again, it was like that era when you were getting all these calls from random people. 
And I didn't answer. I was having breakfast with my husband and he just looked at me and looked at me and he was like, aren't you going to answer the phone? No. <laughs> Why? Who's <laughs> from New Jersey that I don't know? Like, oh, no, no, you have to answer the phone. And it rang out. So he grabbed my phone and he called the number and he gave it to me. And it was Iron Man. It was someone from the Iron Man Foundation saying that I had gotten the slot and asking if I wanted to do it. So my first question, well, I obviously, I said, absolutely. And I asked them, is it for this year? <laughs> she said, yes. I'm like, oh, okay, well, uh, let me check with my doctors. And, and they said something like, no, 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 Nigel already did. You know, we already know that you can, I mean, if it's up to you, if it's uh, how you feel. And I'm like, no, absolutely, I'll do it. And Kona was October 13th and my crash was May 8th. Wow. As I listen to your story, you know, one of the things that occurs to me is that, I mean, if you were not an, an iron woman in the first place, aided in your, your healing and your ability to be able to literally live forward or ride forward or run forward or swim forward and, and uh, you know, led to this moment. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's so important. And that, that was also something that took on like a whole new meaning for me, how important it was for people to understand how crucial you know physical activity is for your body and and as we even as we grow older you know we get stronger and you know we just can't let that go another thing that happened at the same time was that all of a sudden like all these people started like coming to me like people that I had been seeking like there was this swim coach her name's Enie Jones and I wanted to work with Enie like my my swim was has always been my weakest link and I searched Amy out. She lives here in Boulder and she, I had heard wonderful things about Amy. Well, one day Amy calls me. She said, I heard what happened to you. Um, I would love to help you. Would you let me help you? And I'm like, oh my God, of course. <laughs> Thank you. And so I, I mean, it was just such an honor, such a privilege to have Amy. I mean, she was getting in the water with me three times a week. She, she had all these alternative methods to kind of get me and get, get me stronger and get me to stretch things that I was kind of scared to stretch. I mean, my scapula was fractured. I had six broken ribs. It was all on the left side. So it was kind of, I don't know, scary for me to use, you know, my arms. And But no, she made me feel so sure of myself and what she was doing with me. I had an amazing swimming company, thanks to Amy. So I trained, I got to Kona. It was a fundraising effort as well. I was meant to raise $25,000. I ended up fundraising $32,000. And what was a comment that I got from the Ironman Foundation was that it was a lot of small donations. So it was really, really meaningful. It was a lot of people just really wanting to help and, and being inspired by the effort and the just learning about what, you know, Women for Try was about, and it all kind of came together so, so nicely. And being in Kona, like, I remember, I, I don't think I've ever had a better racing day in the sense that everything about it was a celebration. It was like just being grateful for the opportunity of, of being there with all these phenomenal athletes of just... At one point, I didn't start panicking because I realized that I was going to be swimming with the best swimmers in the world. And I was just scared. And because, you know, life is great, I had Leanda Cave in the, like, there. I had met Leanda here in, in Boulder. And she 
manage to kind of, she told me, don't worry. And she told me what to do. And she's like, don't worry, just, you know, place yourself here and it'll be fine. What is, what is Leanda's connection? Yeah. So Leanda Cave is the only woman who has won the world championship Ironman race and the 70.3 race. She was, so she's a world champion athlete. Yes. Okay. Good. <laughs> yeah. She was like amazing. And, and again, living here, um, it's interesting because you get to meet all these legends in the sport and train with them. So yeah, so after I do Kona, I come back home. I'm going to interrupt you just a second because, you know, for our listeners, Kona is really the uh, ultimate with the Ironman series. That's the original Ironman in uh, Hawaii, uh, the one that uh, hopefully most of us are familiar with from uh, TV, you know, and, and seeing all kinds of inspiring people, not only who win the race, but you know, people who are crawling across the finish line with, you know, three minutes to spare or things like that. And, and uh, I think there's an 84-year-old nun who has, uh, has done it multiple times. <laughs> you know, it's just one of those uh, events that, uh, you know, regardless of whether you're able to participate or not, on a very human level, you just feel a connection with being inspired by what the human body can do. And, you know, so you being able to participate you know, literally a few months after, wow, uh, you know, to me, that's just a, a model for how the whole world should work every day. Yeah, no, I was, you know, the, the kindness of just so many people and and just being able to to kind of channel all that energy, because what I started doing was just every day I would post a video or I would I would take people training with me, right? And I would talk about what it took or, or you know, what I was eating and and people were very engaged. I mean, really, they were very, very interested. And so it was really a cool process and it also helped me heal. I'll tell you that I was in therapy for PTSD for a year. It was so hard for me to get back on the road, but I had, again, this phenomenal therapist, her her son is Sam Long. I don't know if you guys know if he's a pro triathlete and he's been very successful lately. Um, and her name's Betty Long. She lives here in, in Boulder. She's also a cyclist. And she, her therapy just basically got me to a point where I was able not not only be comfortable, but be okay on the road and and certain roads. I mean, on, if I'm completely frank, there's places that I'd rather not be at and rather not ride, but 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 I'm out there and I'm out there, I don't know, five times a week at least. And so I'm just very happy and grateful for Betty because she did an amazing job. And she does on a regular basis do an amazing job with lots of people. But anyway, so she got me to where I was comfortable in Kona. In Kona, for whatever reason, I'll, there were a couple of cars on the course, but I always felt super safe. I never felt, I always, in my mind, they were either support crew or <laughs> something to do with the race or press or something. So, you know, it was never uh, something that I was scared of. So anyway, so I got back to Boulder and I was like, well, now what, what am I going to do? Um, because I think that this is a real problem. I, I can't, the more I learned through my, the legal, the criminal case that I lived through with this man, I, the more information I received, the more I was appalled and the more I realized that we needed to change things. You know, as an athlete, I was always navigating the universe, thinking that if something bad happened, that we had a society that was set up to protect us, right? That if somebody did something bad, like when you're little, you know, the bad guys go to jail or the bad guys are 
they're not going to get away with it. And unfortunately, especially in road safety, that's not entirely true. I mean, things are very blurred. There are many ways to unfortunately, like, quote, unquote, get away with it. And, and it's just not fair. So, like I said, in Colorado back then, the careless driver, which I couldn't understand why my driver was not charged with reckless driving, but then they told me that reckless driving, you had to prove malicious intent. And so, you know, we don't know why he chose to make the decision he made. So it was careless driving. And so in the process, coming back, you know, the 13 months I had to wait for this man to actually admit that he was guilty and all the things that had to happen in between, there was a bill, Bill 175, which is now the law in Colorado. But back then it was in the middle of the legislative session, they needed witnesses. Bicycle Colorado reached out to me and I was super scared. I had never done anything like that before, but I am so glad I did. I remember I took my little boy with me to the Capitol just so he could experience this. And, and, and yeah, so we heard some pretty intense things because there were 24 witnesses and I was the last one. And it took everything. So I was really, really intimidated and very scared, but I got up there and I talked to them. And then the then it continued the process. So I got to testify again. And that second time, there were only four of us. So it's just really important to keep that in mind because I think most people don't realize how powerful their individual voice is and how important it is to speak up and to really be a part of things that you believe are going to make a difference. So after that, the bill passed and it was just waiting for the governor's signature. And again, because life is the way it is, especially with things that have to do with it could be me. I I get invited to this fundraiser where the governor is going to be and I get to talk to him. And I talked to him about Bill 175. It was a few short weeks after he signed. I mean, I'm not saying that I was the culprit, but you know, it was just a coincidence. But um, a couple of weeks after that, um, I got invited to the signing where the governor was going to sign the bill and the people that had participated in the process were there. And it was just, it was, it came full circle. It was like my crash had a reason or it was no longer just this horrible thing that had happened to me and my family, but it took on a different meaning. So the bill is now the law. And so now a careless driver gets up to 12 points, which means that they can lose their license for a year. They get forced restitution, forced community service, and forced driver education. And the driver education angle of it is is a very specific course that was... Um, designed by Bicycle Colorado, which is a bicycle, like, driver-friendly course. So it has a different spin on it, and it's really, really wonderful and great. They're working on getting it uh, digitalized so it can be available across the country um, because it's phenomenal. So that's what they have to take. We'll have to hear about that when it is digitized so that it can help to uh, promote that. I mean, it really is amazing uh, how you've been able to turn a tragic event and all the injuries that you uh, suffered and endured and have worked so hard to heal from to put that energy of, uh, of your story to create a broader story for other, not just cyclists, but for motorists in general, to, you know, to recognize that uh, 
we we all are in this together, and uh, and we need to recognize that and uh, to honor each other as such. How did all this lead up to founding your foundation, It Could Be Me? Before my crash, my kids rode their bikes to school. I mean, it was just, it was one of the reasons. We were very fortunate in our life cycles to where my husband was about to retire and we were choosing a place where we were just going to, you know, and, and, and we chose Boulder because we knew that it was so cycling and pedestrian friendly. We have miles and miles and miles and miles of protected bike paths. And we just thought it was a great idea. So my kids are riding their bikes to school every day. Uh, my crash happens and I'm no longer feeling this safety. I'm like, there's no way they're going to, no, no, I, I, I cannot even bear because their route did include some major streets that they had to cross. I mean, it, to me, it was not foolproof. And so I said, no. So then I started driving them. This is like a whole mile that I had to drive them, but I drove them. And it was in one of those drives that I was looking out the window and I saw the cyclist and and I said, I wish people understood that it could be any of us, that it could, that it, you know, it could be me, it could be you, it could be anybody on that bike, you know, and I wish people would would act as if it was someone that they cared about because ultimately somebody does. And that all led into, oh, well, you know, it could be me. So it started like that. My daughter was studying in Savannah in a school of art. And I remember telling her, you know what, I, I wish I could put together a video of some sort to kind of talk about this, it could be me idea that I have. And I could make a video and, and kind of talk about me so people could see me as more than just like some person out there or some unrecognizable person because I figured maybe that way they could understand that I'm a person, right? And that we're all people. And so I did that. There was a student, friends of hers that were studying film. So they helped me edit the video. They made this amazing work and send it to me. And we posted that video on July 26th, I think, 2019. And over the weekend, we had 25,000 views of that video and shares. And yeah. And so I was like, well, there's no turning back. And at the end of the video, I had a call to action. So I was asking people to make short little videos, just telling me a little bit about, you know, what made them them. And then the request was to, to ask people to log, look out for them on the road. And also they had to say that, that they always were law-abiding cyclists. So, you know, and that we wanted that kind of same respect in return. My thing was that I read and read and read because I was trying to understand why people are so angry at each other, right? I mean, why was there this culture of us versus them? And it had a lot to do with the fact that a lot of drivers are not seeing cyclists as human anymore, right? So I figured, well, maybe we, uh, you know, we remind them. Yeah, indeed, we're all human. So I started receiving videos from all over the world, all sorts of people, kids, moms, dads, grandfathers. I have this one video that's like beautiful. It's this granddad and he starts talking and then it opens up and you can see his whole family and they're all sitting there saying, you know, please watch out for him because he's my dad. He's my grandpa. He's amazing. 
cycling group started sending me videos. Then it grew to um, like professional athletes started sending me videos. <laughs> I got videos from Alex House, from Pete Stettenup, from like the top cyclists. And then I decided to fly to Kona. And I said, okay, well, you know what? I'm going to fly out there and get videos from people and see, you know, what the reaction is. And yeah, so I had my 11 second elevator pitch. I didn't have press credentials. I didn't have anything. I just went up there and I had my little suitcase, my microphone, and I went out there with all of the pro athletes out. I intercepted them. And sadly, um, every single one of them had some horrible experience, whether it was them personally or someone that they loved. So they were very quick to participate. I got at that year, John Ferdino won, and I got a video from John. There was Lucy Charles, Lionel Sanders, like all the top athletes. There, no, not one of them said no to me, not one. And so I come back and there's all this momentum and I'm thinking, well, what can we do? We should do a public service announcement. So we do that. And at this point, I'm thinking, you know, I, I want to start a 501c3, but everybody that I talked to about it says that it's just such a challenging, very hard and long process. So I started trying to, <laughs> so I'm like, okay, well, but. I'm sorry, I, I giggle a little bit because having been through that process uh, myself, you know, as all those people who have supported you uh, in your efforts so far, you know, I found that people stepped up you know, who had special skills or knowledge, you know, that I didn't have that, you know, helped to move everything forward. And, uh, you know, I think back, I'm so grateful that those people were around. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of hard when you're starting something like a 501c3. Uh, you don't have time to go to law school and, and, and you know, and get your, your law degree and, and uh, you know, have all the, the knowledge that you might need to navigate a system. But obviously, you were able to do that. Well, I'll tell you, I was very lucky, like you said. I mean, I'm just surrounded by all these incredible people. My lawyer, who helped me in my crash, he was around to begin with because he was a friend of my husband's. They ride together. They ride their bikes together. And he's become a really good friend of mine, too. And in him seeing me grow, it could be me. You know, at one point, he said, I'll help you. This is not what I studied in law school, but... I'll learn and I'll help you set it up. And so he did. And we had our 501c3. He is the official secretary. <laughs> I have a great board of directors. I also said, you know, I'm not going to demand a huge chunk of your time. I just need your guidance and your expertise. So the vice president is Pete Piccolo. He is the executive director of Bicycle Colorado. Bill Pluck, he has a media company here in Colorado. Mark Sunderland, who is our treasurer, who's amazing. Rachel Joyce, who's also another world champion triathlete. Kevin Holden, who is not only uh, a triathlete champion, Kona, he's been everywhere, but she also is a founder of a team called Core Sports. And she has a very solid vision of how women just need to be not only encouraged, but really made to feel that being a part of sport is a, a positive and a wonderful thing. I want to come back to uh, It Could Be Me, because what are the kind of things that you're involved in uh, right now with It Could Be Me? So we were very fortunate. I am very tenacious, so I'm always seeking opportunities and trying to 
really make coalitions with other organizations. I think that if we're going to change things, it has to be in unison. Divided, we will not conquer. United, we will. That was very, very clear from the very start. Um, we started an ambassador program. So we have over 300 people worldwide that in the main already had efforts going on and they just added it could be me to their notch of things that they do. But they are people that are changing their communities in many different ways. There's some that are involved in legislative change. We have a support group that is mainly a virtual community. And because of what you said of what happened with COVID, I mean, all of these efforts that we had in person kind of had to be modified. And so we have a lot of our activity is virtual, which is actually really interesting and cool to me now because of the how it facilitates communication and how we've been able to grow at a worldwide level where, you know, if we were just focusing on other ways, it would have been more challenging. But so we have multiple support groups for crash victims, for people that just want to start writing, for example. There's another really great group of people. But as an organization, I started seeking to make coalitions with people. And last year, they actually called me. I mean, I I looked for them for quite some time. And for whatever reason, we never connected. And then one day, Amy Cohen called me from Families for Safe Streets. They were in the middle of starting an effort to get the administration to commit to zero traffic deaths. They had a document, they had a resolution, the zero traffic deaths resolution, and they asked for our support. And what that implied was a series of things. I mean, I started calling Congress members to ask for meetings. It could be me someone from Families for Safe Streets and someone from the National Safety Councils. They That was the other organization, which is Road to Zero, is the branch of the National Safety Council that is involved with us. And so we were so successful as a coalition. We really worked so well together. We're all women. And at the end of our effort, I must have led around 40 of these meetings. We had tremendous support from Congress in general. And then Secretary Pete announces the National Roadway Safety Strategy in January. So this is after all of the year working, working, working. And when he (laughs) reads what it is, I started crying, Tom, because it was verbatim what we were asking for with a zero traffic death resolution. And not only was it what we were asking for, It came with $6 billion along for extra money just to create complete streets around the country. So there's all this funding available through different grants and to, you know, change how we move around in this country and to prioritize not only cars, but everybody that needs to be out there. So to not be car-centric anymore and understand that for many, many reasons, utilizing other means of transportation is the best thing that we can do as a country. And for any of our uh, listeners who uh, may not be familiar with Road to Zero or Vision Zero, these are initiatives that are, are really focused on what do we need to do as communities, as states, as countries to uh, reduce traffic deaths to zero. Some people might say that that uh, is a pretty idealistic goal to have. But, you know, the question always is, is to me is, well, who in your family do you consider to be expendable? 
that it's okay for them to die in a car crash. I would imagine that none of us would would name anyone, you know, because it would not be acceptable to us. And so if it's not acceptable to us, why should that be acceptable in any family anywhere, uh, not only in this country, but around the world? And, you know, what do we need to do to get to that? You know, a lot of this has to do uh, with infrastructure and planning and, you know, creating spaces that will help to mitigate the effects of a crash. But also on a personal level, it's it's looking at what kind of behaviors are we going to engage in to help to create uh, safer environments for the benefit of everybody. Because you know, the two questions uh, that always come to mind for me is who do you love and who loves you? Our answers to those questions should be all the reason in the world, you know, to follow the rules of the road, to, uh, you know, stop at stop signs, make sure we buckle up. One of our initiatives with Keep Kids Alive is called Be Aware, Drive with Care. One of the key pieces of that is be aware, be recognize what's going on around you. If you're on a cellular device, you're probably not paying much attention to what's going on around you. And that can have fatal consequences. And uh, recognizing that we all play a role in this. And, uh, you know, if we can take our roles to heart because we care about people, Uh, who love us and who we love and recognize that there's not a person on earth that doesn't love somebody and is loved by somebody else and put ourselves in their position and uh, allow us to act accordingly. Adding on to what you just said, there's a plan that has been proven to be successful in other countries. So that plan is what has been adopted in the National Roadway Safety Strategy. So it's adopting the safe systems approach. It's the understanding of us as a country that what you just said, nobody's expandable. Nobody needs to die out there. There are other countries that have solved this issue. We're in the middle of a crisis and we have to treat it as what it is. And we have to also change our perspective. I think a lot of people have gotten to a point where they just assume that because we have cars, there's going to be a natural consequence and somebody has to die because that's just the price we have to pay. And it's not true. Absolutely zero. That is not the case. And like I said, luckily and fortunately and thankfully, we have a leader right now in the Secretary of Transportation that has a mentality of we're not going to accept anybody else getting killed out there. It's really exciting to see that someone with so much power is on our side. For those of you out there that are interested in following up on this, all you got to do is Google it and you'll find all kinds of of information. And if you have an opportunity too to be involved uh, on the local level, uh, I know uh, I myself, I've been invited to be part of the uh, traffic advisory committee that's associated with our own Vision Zero effort here in uh, Omaha and uh, much, much, much work to be done. You know, I think especially when it comes to uh, engaging local residents in the process, because we need to realize this isn't about something simply being done to us or at us or for us, but we need to be part of that process because, you know, we all have a stake in this. Every one of us probably lives on a street of some sort, and uh, we're concerned about what happens on that street in front of our own homes, and uh, as we should be. But also, as we're navigating those streets, whether it's as a, uh, a driver or a passenger in a car or uh, as somebody walking in the neighborhood or riding a bike, that we all have a vested interest in what happens in those streets. And we need to do that together because at any one time, 
we may be a motorist, we may be a passenger, we may be a cyclist, we may be a pedestrian, or we may be out in the yard playing with our kids. It really is uh, us. Uh, when you say it could be me, you know, it could be me in terms of somebody who ends up becoming a victim of a tragedy, but it could be me who helps to act in ways that help prevent those tragedies in the first place. So to me, there's just so many ways that uh, the title of your foundation can apply to all of us in so many different ways. No, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's trying to eliminate the whole concept of us versus them. It's all about us. And we should always look at it like that. I'd like to kind of begin to, to wrap up. And is there anything that you've thought of that you would say, if we finish this conversation and I forgot to say this, I would want to come back and say it. One of them could be talking a little bit about it could be me and our differential with Families for Safe Streets. I mean, we are different organizations. We have a lot of the same mission, but at the same time, we are basically crash survivors. It could be me. Unfortunately, Families for Safe Streets, as you know, basically everybody there has lost a family member. And through these phone calls or these meetings that we did, we got to know each other. A lot of our members got to interact with each other. I got to know a lot of the Families for Safe Streets people, and they're just unbelievable. Their courage and the strength that they have. And also, I mean, the, it could be me people. Everybody that has the courage to turn something horrible into something that is going to help people, I think it's just amazing. I mean, there are people in our organization that will never walk again that have been left as quadriplegics and they're still out there trying to do everything they can to make sure that it doesn't happen to someone else. I mean, that is just, so that's something that I wanted to kind of add. And also that I was talking to my kids this morning and I'm like, you know, Thomas, the only person I have ever met in this space that has not been personally impacted by this. We had this conversation. I, I think, unfortunately, unless something like this happens to people, it's very hard for them to really dive in and understand how much we need to work on this and how much we can make a change by becoming involved. And I include myself, like I told you earlier, I just navigated life thinking, oh yeah, well, I don't make the loss, I don't, but I'm sure it's, it'll be fine if something bad happens to me. No, we need to kind of really do some research and, and understand how how we can help to make things better because we can. And so I'm very grateful for you, Tom, because, you know, you're like that one person <laughs> that is doing these amazing things for other reasons. Well, thank you. Well, you know, to me, you're one of the reasons. Whether it's the proactive work of Keep Kids Alive, which is to really help communities to create what I would call comprehensive traffic safety campaigns to help educate the community about how we can be involved uh, in the effort to help make streets safer for the benefit of all. Uh, or if it's our, our reactive response through what I've called Live Forward, which you represent in, you know, the very fiber of your being. And people like Amy Cohen and, and Laura Fredericks, and, you know, I could go on and on and on with, with so many people who, uh, in living forward, they're bringing great good into the world that is making a, a positive difference in the lives of people that oftentimes are people that we will never meet. 
uh, but they're affected by by the efforts uh, that we put in each day. And so, and I'm so grateful because you know when you mention about being connected and partnering and being united in effort, it is so important to recognize that there are so many organizations out there, and many of them are very small nonprofits that are making a, a, a significant difference with small budgets and you know in small staffs. But the passion for mission is what really moves the needle from hopefully negative to positive. And, you know, when you talk about the legislative actions that you've been involved in, and I think of that with so many of the families in Families for Safe Streets, is what made those legislative opportunities, what helped them to come to fruition? And it was the stories. We're being willing to share stories. You know, that to me, stories are absolutely everything. Because and every one of us has one, and how we tell that, how we share that, you know, can hopefully help shape uh, the world for the better. So I, I really am grateful that you have committed yourself in so many ways to bringing so many partners together in the effort to to make the world a better place, to make every street a safer place, and uh, to make it possible for people to to go out and to be able to ride safely and to navigate their neighborhoods on foot or for kids to just be able to play in a front yard or a park. Adding to what you're saying, I mean, yeah, the reason we, uh, during these calls, I mean, our participation was so crucial because we could talk about statistics all day long, right? But I often felt sorry for the people that we were meeting with because they had no idea. I mean, seriously, how much of an impact the people that they were going to meet with would have in their lives. I mean, we had people crying that represented Congress members. I mean, it's just so horrific. And the courage that it took for these people to share their stories, and they continue to do so. So, so yeah, so if you have a story, please join us, join Families for Safe Streets, because you will make a difference for sure. I mean, absolutely, 100%. If you're at that place where you're comfortable and you you want to do something, please join us. Um, right now, our next effort is um, the World Day of Remembrance. Um, we're working, again, with the same people. We have the same coalition. So it's Families for Safe Streets. It could be me, the Vision Zero Network, and Road to Zero. And at a national level, we've led this effort where... I think we're close to 50 communities at the moment to put on World Day of Remembrance events and not only as a memorial event, but also paired up with an ask. And so the ask will be very individual to each specific community, depending what you recognize you need. And it could be anything like asking for if your community is not part of Vision Zero to become a Vision Zero community, to speed reduction to perhaps you've identified there's a dangerous intersection that may benefit from a stop sign. So stop sign, very specific asks. So moving forward throughout the year, your event will keep on giving and saving lives. Hopefully we may be able to drop this episode before November 20th, because that's uh, the World Day of Remembrance this year in 2022. And the World Day of Remembrance is dedicated to all victims of traffic violence throughout the world, because you know, regardless of where we live on this earth, loved ones have died in traffic incidents. And uh, it's important to remember our connection with everyone uh, in our community, in our states, in our country, and around the world. That, you know, as human beings, one of the things that uh, I was reminded of in your sharing 
Uh, we need to encounter each other at a human level. You know, when you mention uh, legislative aides, uh, you know, breaking down in tears, you know, to me, that's because they've been touched at a human level. It's where we all live. It's where we all have an opportunity to connect. And that's why our stories are so important, because that's where our human emotions, our hearts are touched. And hopefully uh, that's what helps something better to happen. Because if we're ever committed, if we ever have a passion for anything, it's going to be at the heart level, not simply at the head level. We can spout statistics and everything, but oftentimes uh, people are not affected by statistics, but they are affected by stories. And stories are actually reflective of those statistics, you know, because every statistic, it, it really represents a human being. And maybe we need to come up with a new, uh, a new word for statistic you know, that really incorporates the humanity of who is represented by those stats. And uh, if we have any uh, folks out there who are experts at language and coming up with new yeah. <laughs> new lexicon, <laughs> you know, here's, here's your opportunity to coin a new word and maybe it'll get in the Oxford uh, uh, Dictionary at some point in the future. So Yeah, I think we definitely need a new word. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. And uh you know, for those of you who uh, would like to learn more about It Could Be Me, uh, itcouldbeme.org. And uh, you can find out more about Trini's work along with her partners. You can also donate there to help support their ongoing mission. For those of you who'd like to learn more about Keep Kids Alive Drive 25, our website's keepkidsalivedrive25.org. Or if you're into shorthand, it's KKAD25, short for Keep Kids Alive Drive 25, KKAD25.org. And you can uh, gain more information about uh, our mission there. I thank you very much again, Trini, and all the best to you and your family and for all the folks who are partnering with you to help make things better on and along roadways. Thank you so much, Tom, for having me. And thank you. It's been lovely. Please visit kkad25.org to find out how you can support Keep Kids Alive Drive 25. And get involved by following on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Remember, it's about kids. It's about safety. It's about caring. It's about time. Thank you.